0: urged us to work for the gospel without fear. Uh, before that, uh, Paul urged us into more love and knowledge and discernment back in chapter 1. And now he's emphasizing this concept of obedience, which is something that applies to every previous command, naturally, uh, because commands don't mean much if we're not inclined to obey them. Uh, Georgia has a, a, a set of uh, chore lists Uh, that she's printed out for the older kids that hangs on the fridge. But, you know, writing them out doesn't mean that the chores get done. They're there, but, you know, that doesn't mean that they're actually happening. And in fairness, this applies to every one of my own to-do lists. Uh, Next to my bed are oftentimes, like, dozens of, of little lists of things to get done around the house and things like that. And sometimes I find them months later only to realize that it's still undone, you know. Or even worse, it's past doing you know, like take out the cat litter and the cat's been dead for two years, like that kind of thing, you know. Um, But very few of us are good at follow-through. So Paul approaches obedience in very simple terms that we can grasp. He addresses us as children, which is good because that's how many of us act. He doesn't give a comprehensive list of all the commandments here, but he explains obedience by telling us what obedience looks like, what the benefits of obedience are, and how obedience is even possible. So, first off, what should obedience look like? Obedience in the abstract is sort of a, a scary word. Uh, we try to discourage people from obeying voices in their head, uh, from listening to peer pressure. You know, we teach our kids to be skeptics about a lot of things, you know, do your own homework, assume a form of bias in everyone, whether it's your teachers, the news, politicians, don't just go along, be respectful, but not afraid to question authority, that kind of thing. But of course being respectful is also kind of unfashionable today, because everyone's pretty certain they deserve respect, but no one seems to think that they owe respect to anybody. Um, My generation loves the civil disobedience, making their grievances known without the respect angle. We're all pretty sure we're oppressed by somebody somewhere. Uh, I swear, a lot of kids I knew in school at Central, Penn State, you know, they made like halfway of a profession out of it, you know, walkouts for school funding, which conveniently meant a day off from classes where they went downtown and shopped or whatever they were doing, you know, or... Uh, Kids at Penn State doing a sit-in at Old Main because they didn't think the student government had enough say in X, Y, and Z, and they would have these disrespectful signs, and you know. Uh, I think obedience is kind of a a foreign concept uh, today, so how do we even begin talking about it? Uh, Lots of kids don't trust their parents enough to obey them, and some parents don't trust themselves enough to demand obedience anyway. Uh, They're more afraid of being called hypocrites than raising obedient children. Um, I think we have this unhealthy libertarian streak in us. Not to knock you Rand Paul fans out there, I know you're there. But uh, the only thing we are naturally inclined to obey is our own desires. And that's why even in an age of disobedience, Coke could get away with the obey your thirst slogan for Sprite. Because a real rebel only obeys his own urges. Now against all that, Paul gives us the example of Christ, who was obedient to the point of humiliation on the cross not just when the authority was acting correctly, but when they weren't. And then Paul turns to us with this appeal in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now... Notice several things here. First of all, again, this urging from Paul comes as a response to his description of Jesus. When he says, therefore, it indicates a segue from the previous passage. Jesus is always our ultimate example. Secondly, Paul calls us beloved, showing a pastoral, fatherly concern for the church. The obedience he is calling us to is not like military orders. It comes from a place of love. And thirdly, notice that obedience is much more meaningful when no one is watching. Paul observes that the Philippian church already has a good track record with obedience. But it's far more important to Paul that they obey when he isn't there. An important test of parenting is whether your kids are just as respectful when you aren't there to smack the back of their heads when they get out of line. Uh, Elena has been visiting us from Spain now for, uh, I guess, a little over three weeks. And when she returns to Madrid, it will make her parents proud to know that she was sweet and respectful her whole time here, even though they weren't here to make her be that way. That was great, you know. And we can't be with our kids every minute. There aren't enough of me to watch all six of mine, even when they're in the same room. So I need to know that they're obeying even when I can't see them. Uh, there's a reason kids play house parties while mom and dad are away. Not that Grace and Alyssa have tried it yet, as far as I know. But it's easier to disobey without oversight. That's profound, ain't it? In other words, we do stupid things when we think no one can see us. Uh, One of my very best friends growing up here was Tim Free. I don't know if Bill's here today. I probably owe him several apologies. Um, If I told you every stupid thing we did to risk our necks, you'd think me unworthy to raise my own kids. But... I mean, we used to play with matches in the crawl space on the third floor at their house. Uh, Tim once threw a, a CO2 cartridge in the fire at Hickory Run. I think we nearly burned the park down that night. Um, we tried to walk across a train bridge in only with the R8 coming towards us. Um, these things happened without parental supervision. They weren't around. I mean, Hickory Run, we took that cabin that's like off to the, you know, the dark one that's like far away from everybody, you know. You can get away with stuff back there. Warning to all you parents that are going to Hickory Run this fall or anything. Um, so, Paul has this same concern. He, he wants us to be the same when we're not being watched. He wants obedience to be more than a Sunday morning activity. Now, also, in the end of verse 12, Paul describes obedience as working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now this passage is confusing and scary for a couple of reasons. First, for the obvious reason that he encourages fear and trembling. Uh, But I think that Paul is referencing is that, that healthy fear of the Lord that you read about throughout the Bible. Fear in a sense that is equated with love and awe and reverence. It's not that you're on his bad side and afraid he'll zap you any minute now. It's a similar fear to the one you face on your wedding day. I was sort of terrified of Georgia that day, but it was kind of different, you know. It's, it's more the weightiness of the occasion that made me a little weak-kneed. That's awe and reverence uh, combined with love. And so that is what we should sense in our obedience before God. Part of the fear is recognizing his power, but that doesn't mean he's hostile to his church. So Paul, in this verse, seems to go against his own theology, though, for a second, by bringing that dirty word, work, into the salvation equation. I don't like that. It makes me bristle. This troubled me some as a young man. Because you don't expect that in Paul. Maybe in that heretic James, but not out of Paul. Naturally, I kid. Luther used to think that way. He, He didn't believe James belonged in the Bible. But I'm sure God straightened him out by now. By the time we meet him, it'll all be squared away. I'm sure him and James get along fine. But you'll notice, even in the English, that Paul does not say work on your own salvation. He says, rather, work out Your salvation. This is a single verb in Greek that should be, or could also be translated roughly as to produce, to effect, practice, bring out as a result of. He's telling the Philippians to demonstrate their salvation by living obedient lives. Part of what's confusing is that salvation gets used in different ways in Scripture a little bit. Sometimes it means political or military salvation, oftentimes in the Old Testament, but even when we're talking about salvation in Christ, salvation in a nutshell is being saved by faith in Jesus from having to go to hell. But salvation in the big picture also includes our sanctification, which is the fancy word meaning that once we're saved, we will begin to live in a more Christ-like and holy way. And that is a battle. And Paul is not wrong to call it work. Saying no to sin requires effort. And I believe that's what Paul is talking about here. So obedience looks like work. It looks like doing the right thing when no one's looking. It looks like having a proper fear and reverence for God. And it looks like imitating Christ, obeying him as our Lord. But Paul gives some further details that I find even more challenging. I want to reread verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Well, crap, there goes my record. Even when I technically do the right things when no one's looking, I usually like to take advantage of the alone time to really let loose with the tongue, because what better time to spout off than when no one's there? See, I don't understand people who vent their anger on Facebook, or why make a public record of it, but in the quiet of an empty house? That I get. And I have a pretty steady habit of blending these things too, because I kind of figure, why grumble and question when you could ask grumbling questions <laughs> and expedite the process? I'm very efficient in that way. When I get to work in the early morning on Wednesday, before the boss, and I see he didn't clean up the way I think he should have the day before, I say, I'll surprise him and clean up before he gets back. He'll be so pleased. No, 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 no. I, I, I grumble. I grumble like a pro, and I do it in question form, just like on Jeopardy. And hence, I violate verse 14 in its entirety without wasting extra time. Why did he leave this here? How many knives did he need to open this box? Would it have killed him to put this away? Why do I even bother? That's just a small sampling. And sadly, I managed to do all this with a sick sense of moral superiority because I'm technically doing my job. See? I'm showing up, I'm cleaning, I'm following direct orders, and nobody's even watching me. Isn't that a form of obedience? Well, no, by God's standards, I'm actually screwing up the whole thing. I would never tolerate mere grudging compliance from my kids. Georgia is even more firm than I am. I have seen her spank them for disobedience, for failure to obey immediately, for failure to say yes mom while doing so, and sometimes for crying. Now I, I applaud all this. I think that the kids are, are great on account of her, her firm discipline and yet I set a disgraceful example for them because the truth is that I'm not really any better at home than when I'm at work and in fact, I'm more brazen there because my paycheck doesn't hang in the balance. At home, I grumble out loud because I want people to hear it. I think it'll change their behavior. I show my wife and kids a sort of impatient contempt so it obviously isn't just the work stress that's making me act like that. You start to wonder if maybe I might be more of a part of the problem than my circumstances, maybe. Sobering stuff. But we're all called to do all things without grumbling or questioning, at home, at work, on the road, on vacation. We are called to follow Christ's example of humility. And why? What are the benefits of such obedience? If we could even begin to get it right, what does Paul say the results will be? Well, we'll look first at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If we remain obedient, we will be blameless and innocent children of God. And that alone is worth the price of admission. But Paul is not saying that our obedience will make us children of God. He is saying that because we, as believers, are God's children, our obedience will make us stand out in a world that has rejected God. Make no mistake, Paul calls the world of his day a crooked and twisted generation, and if you think the same labels wouldn't apply today, you're not paying attention. We, too, live in a decadent society. The West, including America, maybe especially, is increasingly post christian Indeed, in many ways, it's anti-Christian. Our culture denies sin entirely, or excuses it by playing the victim. It denies not just some truth, but the very existence of any objective truth. Our culture either denies God entirely, or else it remakes him in their image. We're so me-centered. We elevate self-esteem as the highest good. Where is that in the Bible? This isn't exactly news to anybody here. You, You see it daily. You see it in school, you see it in work, you see it in your neighborhood. But if what Paul is saying holds true, it means that we didn't lose the culture. Because we never had the culture. Christ and his people have always been offensive to the world. We are not unique. You can either imitate Christ who was obedient even to the cross, or you can spend your life grumbling, demanding a fair shake and the respect you deserve, blaming your circumstances for your disobedience. But it's really hard to do both those things. The church in every age is called to live in obedience because that is what makes us stand out. We are meant to shine as lights in this world, and our obedience is how we proclaim Christ's lordship. And how can we outshine this culture when we look just like them? If we are sexually immoral, foul-mouthed, angry, disrespectful, and acting like God is not on the throne, how is that going to shine out? We should look different from this generation. We want to reflect our community's diversity here, but we do not want to reflect her character. Our obedience stands as a witness and testimony that we are not a slave to the culture of this age, but children of the living God. And that's a darn good reason to obey. Because true, consistent obedience becomes a form of evangelism. When we look different from the culture in how we treat work, sex, money... Family, marriage, how we eat and drink, how we speak, how we respect the civil authority. I see the Facebook rants. I know we're all having a rough time. But we're supposed to be respectful. Obedience in a disobedient age points people to Christ. But Paul gives another reason why we should obey. Why should we obey? Look at verse 16, the second half here. We should obey so that In the day of Christ, I, Paul, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is going big picture here. The day of Christ is a reference to the second coming and the final judgment. And what he's saying is that if the Philippians remain obedient, Paul will be able to stand proud in eternity. But he goes to the next natural step. Paul's already said earlier in the letter that he expects to be released from prison this time. And he he was. But on the off chance, he says, that they might just execute him, and that's what he's referencing when he talks about being poured out as a drink offering. He's using the same language he eventually uses in 2 Timothy when he's on death row in later years. But on that off chance, he wants the Philippians to know as long as they remain obedient, then he would die happy. And moreover, they should be happy too. We can't understand this if we think of death as final. If physical death is really the end of the story, then very little matters beyond that. Why worry about your family or your estate? The IRS says I owe them, tell them to come and get it. I'll be in an unmarked grave with a pile of IOUs. Who cares? But if I have an eternal perspective, far from making our obedience in the here and now irrelevant, it actually gives it more meaning in part because obedience is a source of comfort to our spiritual mothers and fathers. The Apostle John wrote in his third epistle, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And Paul is basically echoing that sentiment. Death is not the final word. If it was, there would be no such thing as comfort in death. We would all go down kicking and screaming. The Heidelberg Catechism says that our only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And amen to that. But Paul adds yet another comfort. He says not just that he belongs to Jesus Christ, but that by their obedience, he'll know that the Philippians also belong to Jesus Christ. And this gives him a joy that not even death can take away. Paul's not here to see us, and the Philippian recipients of this letter are long gone too, but I would venture to say that most all of you here, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you either have a spiritual father or mother, or you are a spiritual father and mother to somebody. And maybe this person led you to the Lord, or maybe they simply discipled you and gave you godly counsel. Maybe they taught you in Sunday school, or it may be your actual mom or dad who raised you to believe, or maybe a family friend. Dave Miller's been a mentor to me in that. But when that person, whoever they are, comes face-to-face with eternity, we can give them no greater gift than our own obedience to Christ, because that will give them confident assurance that they ran their race as well. Paul goes so far as to say that he would rejoice, and he says that we should do the same. Now, my own earthly father, he was a spiritual mentor to me. We didn't talk about everything. He was kind of an introvert about certain things, but he taught me a lot, and he prayed for me all the time, as he did for all his kids, and quite a few of his spiritual kids, too. And, you know, today, not all of his children or his spiritual children have remained obedient to the faith. They're not walking with the Lord, all of them. And I think that caused him great grief and I know he was prone to second-guessing and self-blame some of the time, but I think he took some comfort in seeing that many of his children and grandchildren were remaining obedient to the faith. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Our obedience to Christ is a gift to our spiritual parents, and it should be a source of comfort to them in death. And it should give us joy, even in spite of their passing. I found even with his passing, I was able to reflect on how God used him to teach me and to reach so many people. And that gave me a measure of joy in spite of the loss and pain. Following Paul's logic, as I walk in obedience, it should give me a spirit of thanksgiving instead of bitterness at his passing. Hard to wrap your head around. Paul is saying that when we have an eternal perspective, our obedience becomes a source of comfort in the here and now. And even if our spiritual parents are gone, renewed obedience today will enable them, like Paul, to be proud in the day of Christ. And maybe they didn't die in that comfort, but it can be theirs on the last day. So don't despair if you feel like you've let your spiritual parents down. It's not too late to repent and walk in obedience because Jesus is in the renovation business, and God is faithful when we have not been, and he will not leave all the disobedient as orphans. So we've seen what obedience is and what it looks like, and we've talked about some of the benefits of obedience, but I think we need to talk about the how-tos of obedience I've already confessed to my complete inability to do the right things, at the right times, with the right attitude. So, telling me how great it would be if I did obey is sort of just depressing. Because I don't feel like a shining light, and I sure don't feel like an innocent child of God without blemish. I'm kind of like the bratty kid with a bad attitude. And most of us feel like the problem child when we really look at ourselves honestly. So, Paul, got any advice for that kind of person? (laughs) Or uh, us black sheep types? we might not be quite as reputable as the Philippians. Ain't got no shining reputation to hang our hats on. Well, Paul actually does give an answer to that. We have to go backward in the text a little bit to a verse I skipped earlier. Verse 13, I'll read 12 and 13 together, though. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hmm. Well, isn't that something? Here I spent so many years thinking Paul might be talking about works righteousness. Maybe I should have paid more attention to the following verse. Ask you something. Who does the work of salvation? Who does the work of salvation? Who saves? God. Yes. Good, there will be a quiz in two weeks, we will cover this again. Herein lies a great mystery of the gospel, that we are called to obedience, and Paul tells us what it should look like, and he tells us to work on it, but then he pulls the biggest ace in the hole of all time out of his pocket. Just when you begin to despair and think, I can't do that, Paul turns around and tells us, you don't have to. God will do it. And he will get the glory. We have no power to obey apart from Christ. He is the one that will free us to obey. He knows we can't be obedient in our own strength. In fact, he knows that often we don't even want to be obedient. My problem isn't just that I can't stop sinning. My bigger problem is that sometimes I don't even want to stop sinning. When I hear that God can help me stop sinning, my heart often goes to that rebellious prayer of the young St. Augustine, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. And God knows that that's where our hearts naturally go. So he doesn't just offer to help us stop sinning and start obeying. He works within us and changes our minds so that we stop wanting to sin in the first place. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. He is working on your work and your will. He doesn't stop short at making you outwardly obedient. He changes your very will to match his own good pleasure. He makes you want to stop sinning. He will give you both the desire and the ability to be obedient. You ever hear people say about somebody who's particularly self-destructive, they say, well, he has to want to change. And that's true in a sense. But who can make someone want to change? Make no mistake, no one decides to change and become obedient to Christ without an inward work of the Holy Spirit. No one can take credit for their own conversion and salvation. Only God can do that. He can change my mind to want to do his pleasure and not my own. He can make me want to work with contentment. He can make me want to love my wife more faithfully. He can make me want to stop complaining. And when we desire to stop sinning, that alone is proof that he is working in you and should give you some assurance. Well, that gives me some hope. It's a comfort to know that I'm not alone in this fight. It's good to know that God is sovereignly at work, not only on my outward behavior, but also on my will and desires. I'm glad to know that he's working to make every bit of me more like his son. That is where the power for obedience comes from. But how do we lay hold of that power? Paul gives that answer, too. Almost in passing. How do we do it? 16 A. By what? By holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. It's interesting how this contrasts with the previous section where Jesus refused to cling to his equality with the Father. We are told explicitly to cling to the word of life. Now that phrase, word of life, is used only one other place in the New Testament that I could find in First John, and he's clearly using it as a title for Jesus. But the word also refers to the written word. This book, here. It's in the written word that we come face-to-face with the word made flesh. Pastor John explained this very well in his sermon on Luke 24, The Road to Emmaus. It's worth looking up on the website. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't leave us alone. He gave us his spirit, and he left us his written word. Jesus says that his appearing is what explains the the whole Old Testament. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus made sense of the whole thing. That's what he was explaining on the Emmaus Road. And then the New Testament contains everything else we need to know about Jesus. Who he is, what he accomplished, what he's going to do. This book is pure gold. This entire book is about Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul is telling us to cling to it. Hold fast, he says. Hold fast, to the written word, and hold fast to the word of life whose glory it contains. Because he is the only one whose obedience can make us righteous too. God intends to save you, but not only from hell, but from your sins. Jesus didn't come only to save you from sin's consequences. He came to free you from sin's bondage, so you could become like him and be lifted up and exalted on the last day to the glory of God. Obedience is not meant to be a burden to bear or a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about earning your way into heaven. It's the mark, the mark of God's children who live in freedom from sin's mastery. If we are in Christ, let's stop acting like children of wrath. Stop acting like victims of our circumstances and hardships, and let's start acting like children of God, obedient and humble shining like lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted Philadelphia in 2017, holding fast to the word of life by the power of God working in and through us. And may our increased obedience give us that joy Paul talks about, which is a comfort even in death. Come to Jesus and let him do it. Let's pray. Lord, we can't do it. We can't be good. We can't be good in our own strength for goodness sake or any other way. Help us to believe that we are your children and to live that way by Christ. Teach us to be obedient. Teach us to hold fast to you and your word. Order our steps, Lord, in your way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. I would ask that the... uh worship team come back up and the prayer team as well if anybody desires prayer.